You are listening to The Vincast, Australia's only podcast dedicated to the world of wine. If you've only recently discovered the show, then you can actually listen to any of the 100 plus episodes that are still available on the Vincast page on iTunes. I've interviewed some of the most amazing people involved in the wine industry today, and they've shared their stories, philosophies, and their projects with me. Going to iTunes and subscribing means you're going to get the newest episodes as soon as it becomes available. And it's also a fantastic way to provide myself, potential listeners, and most importantly, potential guests, uh, some feedback. The feedback is provided by leaving a five-star rating and a review. And as mentioned on previous episodes, if you mentioned one of your favorite episodes and then get in contact with me, you can receive a beautiful watercolor wine map of the Yarra Valley wine region made by Linus Wilson from Wines and Makers. I'd also like to encourage you to visit me on YouTube at the Intrepid Wino, one word, uh, YouTube channel. Uh, and you can check out some of the videos that I've posted, including over 100 editions of Let's Taste uh, and also my awesome Intrepid winemaking Sangiovese project uh, in 2016. Uh, thanks very much, guys, for your support. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Episode 105 of the Vincast, I chat with cult wine producer based in northern Tasmania, Joe Holliman from Stony Rise Wines. Hello there, Vincasters. Welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And as always, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I've got a really, really awesome guest for this episode. Um, I've, I've, I've been trying to get him on the show for a while now. Um, he's uh, definitely been uh, someone I've wanted to chat to uh, ever since I started the show. I think I met him not long before I started it uh, when he was showing his wines down at Prince Wine Store in South Melbourne. Uh, a guy by the name of Joe Holliman, uh, who is a uh, a really amazing wine producer, making some of the best Chardonnay and Pinot Noir uh, in Tasmania, if not Australia, um, and has a really, really wonderful um, background in the wine industry uh, and also has uh, you know a lot of respect uh, from sommeliers and wine writers and the like. Uh, so I was really excited to chat with him whilst he was here in Melbourne recently uh, and uh, find out more about his background. So uh, please stick around to the end of the episode so you can find out how to get in, in touch with both of us. Uh, but until then, I'll see you on the other side. Joe, thank you very much for making some time in your schedule whilst you're here in Melbourne. Um, you, maybe you brought the weather with you. This, we've had a lovely rainy afternoon. Thank you very much for that. Uh, pleasure. <laughs> you can have some of ours. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you guys have been having a bit of drought problems of late, haven't you? Uh, drought over summer, but um, yeah. it hasn't really stopped raining much since. Okay. Well, that's good. But uh, thank you um, and welcome on the podcast. I uh, typically start every episode by asking my guest if they can remember whether there was an incident uh, in their life that made them think about wine in a different way that possibly started them on the path to uh, a wine career or was it more of a, a, a gradual thing? Um, this is an interesting question because I have a, a, a thought on this um, but my family tell me completely differently. But um, I grew up in a family that liked wine. My father had a bit of a thing for it. Mm -hmm. Um and when I was about 14, so 1984, my father planted a 0.6 of a hectare vineyard in Launceston. So he had, he had a hobby as such. Right. Was he, was he a professional of some sort? He worked for a family business, a family transport business. So yeah, okay. Um, that went for a long time. But, but uh, I have this memory of um, I think I was probably about 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. And uh, my friend, my, sorry, a friend of my father's, and he had got together and um, bought a bottle of 
um, it must have been 1971, maybe 1970, Shadow Akem. Wow. With the idea that they'd always share it together. And this friend of his had planted a, had plans to plant a vineyard in the Tamer, which was called St. Matthias, which is now owned by Marilla. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we were on the east coast of Tasmania at their shack. And I still remember tasting that wine now. Um, but having a little sip as a young kid, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and just sort of the intensity and there was something about that that sort of piqued my interest. Then you were able to get past just the sweetness and enjoying that part. You actually saw a lot more to the wine. I think so. I think as a as a kid you probably um, see the sweetness and like the sweetness and think, well, if all wine tastes like this, I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there must have been something that happened for me to remember it because yeah. there's a whole lot of stuff between that incident and now that I don't remember. So there must have been something... In that moment. So that's your theory? Yeah. What's your family's theory? Uh, my family's theory, they find it hard to believe that, that that I remember that point and that that's what they think, that, that that's why I think I had some interest in wine. Right, okay. So the, the, the event occurred but the, our sort of understanding of what reference it had to where I am now is probably a bit different. They, they kind of think of it and they're, they're like they're not that surprised. It's like, well, we kind of... You, you sort of had some interest in wine. You were interested in what we were doing as far as planting the vineyard. It was this about the same time as, as your father was planting the vineyard? It would have been pretty close, maybe okay. a little bit before then. Right, okay. Interesting. Um, was, did they drink a lot of wine at home in general? They had, yeah, we did. We, we always had wine and that's the other sort of thing, you know. I, I, I sort of have this memory of the old, you know, European ideal of or story of, you know, young children having a little sip of wine with some water in the glass mm. with every meal or, you know. Um, so it, it sort of, I guess it grew from there. Um, we And my father, a part of the transport business, he shipped a lot of wine around, I guess, and so he um, there was always wine on the table. Right. And he had friends interested in wine, so we'd get together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess as I got a bit older, that whenever he he drank quite a lot of European wine, okay, um, at the time because it was sort of reasonably priced and easy to get, yeah. Um, and it wasn't you know heaps and heaps of Australian wine that was really easily accessible at that time. Like the, um, the big the, plantings was starting to happen a lot more in the eighties. Yeah, I think so. It just I think it helped. That he had an interest, so he wanted to find out what else was happening in the world yeah. with wine as well. Yeah. Um, and it just sort of grew from there. If he opened a bottle of European wine and I wanted to try it, then he got a book out and said, well, you better read about it before you try it. Wow, learn okay. something about it. Sure. Um, so it was sort of a, a, a an educational experience yeah. at the same time. Yeah, okay. So you were born and grew up in, in Tassie in Launceston? Yeah, yeah, grew up in Launceston. Um and uh, left, I guess, when I was well, – I left home when I was about 17 but went to – lived in Hobart, so not too far but far enough, um, and then uh, moved back 12 years ago. So I had about sort of 12, 15 years away. Okay. Yeah. Um, what What took you to Hobart? I actually went to Hobart to play cricket. Really? Hmm. Ah. Yeah, so um, – Sort of. Were you a, a bowler or a batsman or a wicketkeeper? I was a wicketkeeper. Okay. Yeah, and um, I sort of had an agreement with my father that if I did well in my HSC, as it was back in those days, I would um, go to England and play cricket. The county cricket? No, just club cricket. Just club cricket? Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the following year I promised to go back to university. and. Right. uh I went to university to do a business degree for about uh, six weeks. <laughs> okay. Had a little bit of a side swipe and uh, we just sort of went off on a different tangent for a while and I decided to go to Hobart and actually take my cricket seriously and right, okay. did that. And, and were you working there as well whilst you were playing? Uh, yeah, I ended up um, – I did a couple of things. I, the guy who initially wanted me to go to um, – Hobart to play cricket for his club had a concreting business, right? Which sort of worked okay. I'd get up at six in the morning, or he'd pick me up at six. We'd go and pour concrete for house slabs, 
Yeah. And uh, I'd be finished by one or two in the afternoon, which meant I could get to training. So yeah, it wasn't yeah. I sort of fitted in. Um, and then as I got sort of deeper into cricket, that wasn't sort of necessarily physically great for me to be pouring concrete all day and then trying to be pretty hard train. on the back and the knees probably. Yeah, it was it was okay. It was probably good exercise, but at the time it seemed you know I was sort of double working every day. Yeah, physically you would have been pretty wrecked. Yeah, so I um I ended up uh, with a strangely enough with a job in a bottle shop. Yeah, okay. So um yeah, so I've sort of I guess I, I previously worked in the industry. I, I worked in a what was a reasonably well-known restaurant in Launceston called Quigley's when I was still at school and I think I was 15. Right. And I was the wine waiter because I knew more about wine in the restaurant than anyone else. Now, I know the statute of limitations is probably well and truly gone, but was that legal at the time? For I don't 15, know. 16 just, to be serving, um, serving booze? It's just the way it worked, I think, you know. That was that was the norm. Yeah. Oh, well, cool. I don't know whether it was the norm. Norm, but, but it was accepted. Yeah, no one really seemed to care. The okay. owners were Italian and <laughs> they just seemed to – it was a normal thing. As long sure. as someone knew what they were doing, it was okay. Okay. Um, and as far as wine being produced in Tassie, was there much going on down there at that point? Bits and pieces, there were certain areas of Tassie or was, was there – uh, a lot going on in particular areas? Not really. Um, I mean, obviously there by then you're looking at sort of late 60s, early 70s when Piper's Brook and Heemskirk were planted, well, sure. Heemskirk at the time, which is now Jantz. Which is still, that's still quite a while, a while ago when you look at, you know, a lot of regions on mainland Australia that really only started to get planted seriously in the 80s. 90s. Yeah, and it was a reasonable uh, volume of planting they did. You know, okay. They didn't sort of just do a couple of hectares here and there. Mm-hmm. There was a little bit going on in that sort of size level back then where there was the odd hectare, a few people um, toying with the idea. Marilla, at Marilla had obviously been planted, I think that was the late 50s. Right. Um, and then there was the vineyard at uh, Lilydale that um, was planted in the late 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of a little bit... It was a bit of a gap, I guess, until sort of the early 80s when you've got things like Holm Oak, Rotherhithe Vineyard, which we now own. Right. Bracenay and some of those. And then into the early 90s when some of the, you know, quite big plantings like for Tasmania at the time, Strathlin, which is the ninth island, called Ninth Island. Sure. Um, yeah, so it sort of it grew from there. But yeah, in the. And it was about that time that. A lot, you know, there were vineyards being planted to sell fruit rather than just to make their own wine. They would like because I know having worked for Chandon, they like would source you know some of their best quality fruit for their sparkling wines from Tasmania. And I'm just interested to know, you know, as other regions around Australia started to get planted with the idea of selling fruit, um, did that start to happen in Tassie in that kind of period? No, I think in the early days when you've got um, Marilla, um, Heemskirk and, of course, the Jantz label was started back in the early 90s Yeah, um, with the Rodra connection. Yeah. Pipers, they were actually all growing grapes to make wine. Okay. Um, and it sort of... Uh, so it, 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 was, it was right in the heavy boom that a lot more planted, planting started to come in. Yeah, but I still think if you look at the industry in Tassie, it, there's not percentage-wise, the, there's a very small percentage of people that just grow grapes. Right, okay. Um, quite a lot of people actually, whether someone else makes it or they only make enough to sell to their friends or... Yeah. There's very few that I know of, there's very few growers as such and, and as the popularity's grown of the, the island mm. and the wines, um, it's becoming less and less. Yeah, okay. It's becoming harder to find people that are... Purely just growers. In that period, it probably would have been a little bit more of larger wine companies either buying into it or, you know, um, it, it, it being like Hardy's, for example, you know, using um, high-quality fruit for some of their multi-regional icon blends or making wines from exclusively from Tassie, that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's become... Probably in the last sort of 15 years, it's become much more of the norm and I guess I, I can't remember how old 
the toll puddle is. It's 20 years old maybe. Yeah. Where Chandon yep. planted and um, a few of those vineyards like where Bay of Fires is now that, mm-hmm. um, that people – there was a bit more buying and selling of fruit. Right. A bit of swapping I think probably. You know, I can't grow this here so you grow it and I'll give you a bit of that. And all right, okay. It's all a fairly friendly industry down there. We Yeah. So um, – yeah, so but the real I guess the real booms only really happened in the last ten years. Yeah. Where there's just, you know, a demand that is un well, not unsustainable, that's the wrong word. It's it, it's unfulfillable. Right, okay. I I mean the the this image of Tasmania being a premium wine producing region, and I mean we're talking about an island that has a lot of sub regions, um, and you know, the 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 idea, well, particularly as cool climate has become sort of more important in the eyes of the consumer, and Tasmania being considered to be the you know one of the coolest climate, if not the coolest climate for Australian wine, I would think that that probably has had a big impact. And and, and do you think there's a lot of tourism to Tasmania that are looking for that kind of thing, like um, vino agri tourism kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. Um, we're probably seeing more people come into Celador and stuff that uh, are on a weekend. Right. You know, um, small groups, you know, two couples, three couples travelling together who get together once a year and they visit a wine region or we did Hobart last year so we're doing the Tamer Valley this year. And Yeah. There's, there's definitely more of that. Um, I think there's more people in general coming because of the um, food wine thing that's going on in Tassie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it continues to grow, I think. I think that's the thing at the moment and that's why some of these growers, former growers, are now making wine and setting up cellar doors because yeah. there's just a constant well, stream I, of people. I know when I was um, down in Hobart earlier this year, um I had you know, discussions about the the lack of um, accommodation. Um, you know, then places get booked up, and it's sort of like, um, you know, and when there's big events on like Dark Mofo or something like that, you know, it can be pretty hard to to, to get a room. Yeah, Hobart's amazing. It's um, especially um, not that I living in Launceston, I don't often have to book a room in Launceston, so yeah, <laughs> I don't really know, um, but. Hobart definitely, it, the times that I go down there, stay with friends a lot, but if I need a room, it's actually quite hard to get one. Yeah. There are a lot of conferences. Yeah. Um, a lot more constant tourism than um, Launceston in that I think for some people, people believe that because it's a capital city, there's more to do there or you can go there any time of the year. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, where Launceston has a little dip. Sure. Weather-wise. Yeah. Not weather-wise, because I'd much rather have summer in Launceston than summer in Melbourne, and I've lived in both, so okay, have some experience. Um, but uh, sorry, not summer, winter. Yeah, I meant to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just think in general, there's more people around. Yeah. Okay. In Tassie at the moment. Yeah. So um, what was it that uh, took you off the island? Oh, um, when I my six weeks in uh, my business degree. Um, I realised I didn't like accounting. Mm-hmm. I didn't like law, mm-hmm. which sort of cuts out of most of a business degree. Yeah, um, but I quite liked the marketing aspect and the the sales and marketing side that we did. The bit little bits that I was there for. Yeah, and uh, I found out about the through a friend about the uh, so uh, the marketing uh, diploma at Roseworthy. Oh, okay. So I went off and did that. Ah, okay. After a while, I did yep. it. Uh, I started externally, uh, went full-time after six months and only lasted a year and then I moved to Melbourne. But I finished the course and that sort of, uh, yeah, that's how I sort of got into the industry, I guess. How did you find the experience um, studying at Roseworthy? Of course, I mean, I know because I studied with Adelaide Uni, but it's it's sort of been consolidated into the, into the Wade campus now. But um, how did you find it? Because Roseworthy, correct me if I'm wrong, is in the Barossa Valley? Basically, yeah. Pretty yeah, much, so yeah. just out of Gawler. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, it was it was already owned 
um, by the uni. By the uni by then, but it was, we was still did. I think I can't remember like my this the second year, the last bit of my second year. I think was the last year they did it at Roseworthy, and right. then they moved it all to Wait. Yeah, um, oh, it was a fantastic experience. Um, living in the country, we had a swimming pool, bar, football team, tennis courts. It was like a bit like Club Med mm-hmm. up in the Barossa. A bit warmer um, than Tassie. A bit warmer than Tassie. And, yeah, just met a lot of nice people, um, met a few people from the industry and, and still friends with quite a few of them. And it's, yeah. Yeah, it was a great experience, great way. I mean, this is 1993 and the industry was – I mean, it's still a small industry relative, yeah. but it was a much smaller industry in 1993 than it is now. But was there um, at the time a bit of investment, like they were kind of promoting – Degrees, wine making degrees, wine marketing degrees, because they kind of foresaw that there would be more need for wine professionals as the Australian wine industry grew and grew. I I, I didn't notice that. Um, I think, you know, my reasoning. I got offered a job here in Melbourne as a, a rep um, through some unpaid work experience, and um, my experience of being an external student and doing residentials where there was 30 or 40 people in the group in my year. Yeah. Some of them, sure, probably already had family businesses or had some relationship to the industry and were just doing their study. Yeah. But then I went internal and there was 30 people doing the marketing degree internally. And I would suggest that in 1993, if you looked up the archives, there was probably about two marketing jobs advertised every year in the wine industry. Right, okay. So... And that's why I took the job when the job was offered because I sort of realised that you have very few of the people that I was at uni with were probably going to end up in the wine industry. And I suppose I suppose the concept of wine marketing, as crazy as it sounds, was still kind of a bit new. Like what – like I think, you know, what we think of as wine marketing, which is just sort of communication, knowing your story and fairly strong branding is something that's been around for hundreds of years but this new concept of wine marketing and public relations and sort of that sort of thing was f- fairly new at that time? Oh, definitely. You know, you went to the Bar- to Rockford in the Barossa and a, a lady called Jane Ferrari who I don't know whether you've ever met. I have met her. You should meet. Obviously. I'm, 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 yeah. I have I've, I've, I've met her and, and I've invited her on the podcast but she does travel a lot. <laughs> she does lot. travel a lot. She travels a lot. But she uh, she was doing – she was doing wine marketing in 1993 that, you know, most wineries in Australia still don't do and mm. that was that she told a story about everything. Yeah. You know, and if you walked in the cellar door there, there could be a piece of wood on the windowsill and she'd have a story about why that piece of wood was there. Even yeah. If there, there was no interest in the story, she'd still tell you the story. And, yeah. And those guys, are, you know, the, the iconic, some of the iconic brands of Australia like Rockford and St Hallett, Old Block and all those wines, they, they didn't need to market themselves. No. They, without realising it, they were doing a perfectly good job. They were job doing it really well it. without realising it, but yeah. they, they just didn't need to do anything. So, And it was, I think, um, in a stage in the industry when because there wasn't as many brands there was a bit more uh i hate to use the word loyalty but it's sort of a bit more loyalty in the trade for certain brands where yeah. now there's so many options for people that it's so that's changed a bit yeah it's, it's much more competitive and yeah. that side of things has changed a bit um so you came in and started working as a, a rep in, in melbourne how did you find that experience I did a year here, and I was the uh, the new rep on uh, on the block for the company. For so um, my territory was pretty much everywhere where no one else wanted to go. Yeah. So it went as far as um, Apollo Bay and Colac and Wow. Okay. Bendigo, Ballarat. Okay. Not that people didn't want to go there; they just didn't have time to some of those places. But so you would have racked up a few a few clicks in the car. I did a fair few kilometres. Um, which was cool, you know. You, I had the Great Ocean Road, so drive along the Great Ocean Road once a month or once every six weeks. and Not the worst commute in the world. No, and I had a friend in Robe in South Australia who I'd met at Roseworthy, so I used to do the Great Ocean Road on a Friday and come back through Colac and Geelong and stuff on a Monday. So, Yeah, nice. So it's sort of, yeah, so that side of it was really cool. Um, and then, But then I got moved to Sydney, so and then I went from doing the Great Ocean Road and, uh, you know, northern 
and western suburbs of Melbourne to um, the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, uh, of Sydney, Sydney. sorry. Um, Bit of a change of pace. That was a slight, slightly change of, slight change of pace, <laughs> yeah. So, a slightly um, more affluent part of uh, Sydney. Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, just um, just a different beast, really. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the sort of hook to go was I got in more involved in the imported wines that the distributor was selling and sort of yeah, okay. got to travel a little bit around Sydney, um, sort of acting as not really a consultant but helping out people to learn a bit more about imported wine. And so the, sort of you, you took that, that opportunity to they, – they kind of saw Joe knows a bit more about wines and imported wines. He's a good person for, for us to sort of specialised accounts that need a little bit more attention with that kind of thing. We'll send him there, that kind of thing. I think so, yeah. There was a bit of that and um, obviously, um, you know, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney is probably where most of those clients would have been based. Sure. Um, but then, I, yeah, there was definitely restaurants, in, you know, in North Sydney and beyond that um, that were buying those wines. It was just about trying to grow that that sort of market at the time a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At, at this period in time... Did you find yourself um, connecting with particular wines, and you know, did you find, uh, did your palate evolve quite a lot in that period? Yeah, it evolved quite quickly, I think. Yeah. Um, while I was at Roseworthy, I worked at uh, 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 what was Bailey and Bailey, which is a group of stores privately owned at the time, and uh, you know, there was a store at St George's in Adelaide. It was arguably one of the best bottle shops in Australia wow. and that was part of our – so I worked there a bit and worked at a couple of their other stores. Mm-hmm. They were bought by Woolworths sort of back in about maybe early 2000s, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and I, the first case of wine I ever bought with my own money was a case of 1990 um, Black Label Cabernet. From? From um, Wins. Wins, yeah. And uh, and then in my early days with the the, my, the distribution business, I I bought some uh, Mondavi Cabernet, and I uh, bought uh, I had a bit of a thing for Cabernet I think at the time. Yeah, and I think I in those sort of three or four years um, doing that job and and subsequent jobs shortly after that that I probably drank more Cabernet than I've drunk since. Really? So um, yeah, and no, I just evolved by. Tasting and, you know, I think your palate evolves all the time. Sure. I think it changes. Um, and uh, There is a greatness to Cabernet, which I think is it's, it's easy to latch on to when you are starting to get a lot more interested in wine. Um, and then I think people kind of evolve away from it possibly, um, always knowing, well, you know, some of the great wines of the world are made, are Cabernet-based, but then they kind of have a, a you know, affinity with, Pinot or, you know, Italian varieties, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, look, I, I'm hoping that I don't go back to that, James, personally. <laughs> but um, I, I understand. I just think, yeah, I think your tastes change. I think um, – I, I, But I look at my cellar, like back when I started to trawl through the Langton's um, auctions, um, you know, and, and, lo- and looking at their classifications – trying to work out what, uh, what was considered to be great wines and age – worthy wines and you know i look in my cellar and there's still plenty of cabernets in there and, and don't get me wrong they're great wines but now i very rarely will go towards a cabernet it's just i, I don't i don't find them as compelling as a lot of other varieties out there yeah i tend to agree with you and i i know that in my game of pinot noir and chardonnay especially pinot though People always talk about how hard it is to find good ones or good ones at a price point or mm. whatever the beef may be. Mm. Um, I would argue that um, Cabernet is even harder. Okay, I mean, great Cabernet is amazing, and it's the, you know one of the great wines of the world. Yeah, um, but I just I, I had went through a stage of struggling to find something I liked. And, uh, okay, so even then you were, you, like stylistically, you were, you had a, you know, a particular preference. Yeah, I think so. I th- and I just, I, as I say, I think my palate moved away from that, and I, um, I don't know. I, I probably, 
move further away from it now and probably continue to move further away from um i guess i I grew up when going back to the original thing food uh wine was a food item almost you know you only ever had it and i still within reason only really drink wine when i eat a majority of it um and we we i don't eat wine that eat food that goes with cabernet yeah Yeah. um i drink i eat uh a lot of sort of asian style food or italian food and Mm -hmm. you really want italian wine or you want riesling or you know something that's going to go with those foods Mm -hmm. and so i think you get drawn away from that relative to your food preference a bit as well I find it is very hard to, you know, it, Cabernets typically aren't, they, they don't have that freshness to them mm. that like between a, a, a mouthful of food, get your palate excited for the next mouthful. You know, the Cabernet mm. really needs something very, very robust to, to match with it. And, and I'm the same, I rarely have steak anymore. I, I mean, that's, yeah. that's partly a product of living with the vegetarian, but <laughs> that's that's another discussion. Yeah, and I just think I'd just like to cut us off there and just say that we've, I've just spoken more about Cabernet in the last few minutes than I ever plan to again. <laughs> so can we move on? Yeah, well, if you want, I can edit this entire section of the conversation out. Um, so, how long were you in Sydney for, and, and what were the kind of the, the, what was the next stage in your wine career? I went. Uh, I had three years in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, three years repping in Sydney. Yep. And then I got a job as the buyer or one of the buyers at the Wine Society. Okay. What, can you explain to the – actually, the wine society. The, very, the very last episode, I was talking with Jane Thompson right. and, and she mentioned the Wine Society and, and, I, and I, I, we couldn't quite work out exactly how it works. So the Wine Society is a, a, a buying – it's almost like a buying group, I guess. Okay. It's a direct mail business. Right. 50,000 – well, when I worked there, I don't know what it is now. Sure. Could be more, could be less. Um. At the time, there was around about 50,000 members. Around Australia? Around Australia, and you used to put $50 in for your membership. Per year? No. $50 was your membership. Right. And if you ever wanted to re- to pull your membership, you got your $50 back. So I don't know how – there must have been a legality as to why I can't really remember. Oh, okay. But I can't remember the active – I can't remember all the figures, but it's a, it's a, a pretty big direct mail business. Right. Was. So, so it's fifty dollars membership, and then you buy wine. Yeah, and then right. you can choose to buy individual wines. So they produce a pamphlet. Yeah, we used to do uh, once a, a little one a month, and then four big ones or something a year. Right. Okay. And well, what what she talked about was like her father being a member of that, and you know, you getting a mixed dozen or something like that, and it was like like you know Christmas, and you open up, oh, what have I got this month? <laughs> Pretty much. We um. You know, this was uh, 1999, round about, Mm -hmm. give or take. Um, I think we had a dozen that was $120. So not that expensive. Not very expensive. And then we had a dozen, I think we may have got up around $300, $350. Okay. um, That went out, you signed up, you could sign up to them to come three or four times a year. Yep. Um, To sort of like what? sort of wineries have started to get as far as your membership yeah, and, we'll, so, you know, we'll send you out a bottle of each of the new releases as we release them throughout the year, that kind of thing. Very much so, yeah. So, yeah, okay. Yeah, constant supply of wine would save you going to the shop if you didn't want to. Okay. So I did that for a year and then, uh, funnily enough, just for one more, I'll say it one more time, I sold all my Cabernet to my father and one of his friends and went to Portugal and did vintage. Wow, you must have amassed a bit of a decent collection to be able to have funded your trip over. I might have probably inflated the prices a bit because it was my father. Maybe <laughs> okay. I don't know. Again, statute of limitations. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, and, and why, why, why Portugal? Because I uh, resigned from my job um, in uh, sort of the middle of June. Yep. Early June. Yep. And I knew that. I wanted to go. That's what I wanted to do: was to go and do vintage and start on the back down the sort of more wine-focused path. Had had you had any experience wine making at that Only point? Only family-wise, and a, I did a vintage in New Zealand in two thousand and eight, and sort of bits and pieces. So, not a huge 
experience, but it, I knew. So 2008 or 98? Sorry, 98. Yeah. yeah, well, I'm good with numbers. <laughs> um, that's why I'm not allowed to touch the money. Yes. Um, so I, I'd had a, a flirt with it, I guess, but I just knew deep down that maybe, you know, if I hadn't gone down the cricket path, I probably should have done something else, winemaking or yep. viticulture or yep. something many years before that. Yep. Um, and I, my boss at the time knew people and I said, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I want to go to Europe and do vintage, but I'm going to struggle. And he said, I'll make some calls. And the next day when I handed my official letter of resignation in, he said, you start in Portugal on the 8th of August. Mm. That wasn't necessarily a go to Portugal. I'm really happy I did and I'd love to go back again. Yeah. Not necessarily for vintage, just to visit because it's such a beautiful place. It but, is. Beautiful people. Um, yeah. But uh, that was just available to me at the time and it was an easy solution. Yeah, Okay. And 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 so I mean, apart from New Zealand, that was your first winemaking experience overseas as well. Well, it, yeah, what, so I, coincidentally as well. Yeah, so I was the night shift manager for a uh, the the uh, biggest winery that was owned by Taylor Fonseca. Yeah, and we made two million liters of port, and I had just completely had no idea how busy I was going to be doing that. Yeah. When you think about the the market for fortified wines around the world, it's amazing that one winery can make two million liters of port for the supermarkets. Yeah, <laughs> in the UK, like the UK, yeah. Um, and 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 how did you start to you know think about coming back to Tasmania and and starting your own project? I'm I'm, sort of, I'm hitting the fast forward button a little bit. Yeah, there. no, that's cool. So, yeah, so I, I, just a, a brief sort of fill in a couple of years. That we, uh, when I left Sydney, I went back to my friend in Robe who had a winery. Yep. Has a winery still and said, well, I'm going to work in a winery. I better remember how to use pumps and yep. stuff. So I went and did Which eight direction weeks. direction turn? Yeah. <laughs> went and did uh, eight weeks with him and then based myself in Robe for basically, I mean, it was three and a half years in the end. Right. Um, working in the winery for vintage a bit helping him with sales and marketing a bit and and slowly my involvement with his business became more sales and marketing than working in the winery, yeah. helping them out. Yeah. And in the meantime, a friend and I who happened to turn up in robe as well from Tassie um, decided to make some wine together mm-hmm. and uh, we sort of just sort of grew from there, I guess, the brand, Stony Rise brand. And then a few years down the track, my phone call with my father telling me about um, pulling out his 25-year-old vineyard. Yeah. And uh, my wife, well, now wife and I said, well, you know, we, we're buying grapes. We're using someone else's winery. Yeah. Um, it'd be a bit of a waste to pull it out. We'll come back to Tassie, but we have to buy something else. And in the throes of doing all of that, um, Dad sold the family farm, and but we'd bought this new property or new old property, new to right. us. Right, okay. So what? Um, so you you were you bought a, a vineyard um, that obviously had already been planted, and and you were establishing a new kind of wine business. Um, what were some of the the first decisions you made? We, did you make many changes in the vineyard? Uh, um, what did you have an idea about the kind of wines you maybe wanted to make? Um, not really. Um, obviously, wanted to make Pinot and Chardonnay, and that was really the focus of going back to Tassie, right? Um, but the style of the wine or the wines, um, not really. It was about, to me, reasonably inexperienced really when I look back, or I know I was very inexperienced in some of this. Um, it was more about the vineyard mm-hmm. initially. The vineyard was a bit dilapidated, so we fixed, we're fixed. we still fixing it 12 years later. There's some parts of it that we haven't quite fixed yet. Sure. Uh, Variety-wise, uh, we... There was 0.8 of a hectare of Cabernet and we pruned it with an excavator <laughs> and replanted it with Pinot. Yeah. Um, so there was no other real aspiration. We were lucky enough at the time to um, be the first people in Australia to have access to Grunewald Lena, so we planted a small sort of 900 vines of that. Mm-hmm. Um, took some Chardonnay out. Hindsight, not the greatest decision I've ever made, but, um, you know, the Gruner's Great. I mean, you know, it's we make about a hundred cases a year. It's quite good fun, and 
I'm sure um, we don't, you don't have too many issues selling that one. Green, no, not green, really. Green is a we keep it pretty much all for cellar door these days. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And um, I, w- I would have thought Melbourne sommeliers would be beating down your door desperate to get some. No? No, not really. It's I mean, shame. it's a bit of a quirky wine. It's my little fun sort of toy because we don't make very much of it, so I muck around with it a bit. And yeah. One of them went a bit pet nat in the bottle and people thought that was a bit freaky. And um, Yeah, so it's been a bit of a sort of... Work in progress. I mm-hmm. think the current one, the new one, is probably the best one we've made. It's yep. the most Gruner-like Gruner we've made. Yeah. Um, and then three years ago, we, um, well, nearly three years ago, we bought a bit of land next door and planted three more hectares. There you go. So we've got seven in total at the moment. Okay. Um, 95% of that's Pinot as well. So, you know, we're, I think we've now got uh, basically got six hectares of Pinot. Uh, Three quarters of a hectare of Chardonnay and 0.2 of a hectare of Gruner. Mm. So the Stony Rise story didn't start in Tasmania. Have I got that right? Yeah, the Stony Rise story started in Robe. Right. Um, and we started the brand, and uh, my friend and I were buying fruit and making the wine at um, someone else's winery. And, and we sort of sat around and said, What are we going to do if we sell it? What are we going to call it? And he said, We both sort of looked at each other and said, Well, we spend a lot of time at Stony Rice Surfing. Okay. And it sort of stuck. And um, and then, but when we moved back to Tassie, because the vineyard we bought, we didn't buy the name, um, we decided to keep using the Stony Rice name because we had some sort of brand awareness. Yeah, okay. That meant rather than starting with a brand new thing, people would drive along the road and go, Stony Rice, I've heard of them, let's go up there. Okay. So it was a bit of a trick, I guess, trick marketing. <laughs> So, and strangely, you know, the whole brand's upside down. The Holloman wines are 100% estate grown mm. from the Stony Rise vineyard, but the Stony Rise wines have bought in fruit in them. Right. Some of them do, so. Um, and did you, you built your own winery? Yeah, we, so we bought the property in 2004. Yep. Uh, built the winery in 2008. Right. So we had, um, we didn't take the 2004 vintage, so we had five, six and seven we made at Tamar Ridge. Yep. And then from eight onwards, we do all of it ourselves, right. except bottling. Yeah. What is uh, – did you do you have a kind of a, a philosophy as to how you work in the vineyard? Do you try to intervene as little as possible? Yeah, look, we it, it's all evolving, I think, still. And the deeper I get into – the longer I'm in it, the more it evolves yep. in a funny sort of way rather yep. than sort of um, – so winemaking-wise, there's no additions other than sulfur. Yeah. Um, but we do use sulphur and don't have a problem with that. Um, I think, and in a general sense, uh, the, the philosophy for me is what the French basically call lute raisonné, which basically means you do everything for a reason. Mm-hmm. So if you have another vintage like 2011 and the only way to save your crop is spray chemicals, then you spray them. Sure. Um, if you don't have to spray them, you don't spray them. Yeah. So we, with that in mind, we... We really concentrate on controlling what we can control. Yeah. So we don't use herbicides or pesticides. Yeah. Because we can do that another way. We don't have a lot of trouble with pests, but um, especially the the herbicides, we use an undivine weeder, and that's you know just what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, no man-made fertilizers. So we, every year we put a temporary fence around the vineyard and get a hundred sheep in, and that's the only fertilizer we use, but except for compost and. Um, Effective lawnmowers as well? Yeah. They, well, the funny thing is that you need to get them out about oh, – they've been out a little while this year because we borrow them. So whenever the farmer wants them back, we have to give them back. Yeah. But, um, they normally come to us newly pregnant and so as soon as – so they sort of move about five or six weeks we get. Yeah. But then as soon as they leave, of course, it's spring and they, all the mowing they've done is, you know, non-existent because <laughs> the grass grows so fast. But, yeah. So we do that. And this year we're using um, – some poppy mulch, which is a fantastic sort of um, – it's a bit of a weed suppressant if you put it on heavy enough. It's not as nutrient-rich as um, compost, but it, it's definitely got lots of nutrients in it, mm-hmm. lots of um, nitrogen. and So we use that as a bit of a uh, weed suppressant as well as a, a goodness generator, and it might mean we can get away with a year without using the undervine cultivator, which will help sort of let the soil settle again and – yeah, 
Um, so, yeah, everything's done for a reason. If we need to do it, we do it. If we don't need to do it, we don't. Sure. Um, and uh, as far as the approach in the, in the winery now, you um, use of oak, that kind of thing, filtrations, you try to limit the addition of sulfurs? Um, uh, sulfur relative to what we do. Um, so we, we do use uh, sulfur and we use a reasonable amount of it, I guess. Yeah. Um, in some of our wines, some of the wines we don't hardly use any, like the Gruner is tiny amounts. We've just released or just releasing next week a, a no added sulphur wine, mm. just tiny amount of Pinot because I'm just playing with the idea of how it all works and it's a bit of an experiment to see how it goes. Have um, you had any influences as far as that kind of thing? You know, do you, are you you – you get out a bit to to sort of to show the wines and and people are sort of talking to you giving their recommendations that kind of thing. Is there anyone who kind of gets in your ear about certain things? Um, no, I'm a good listener. Yeah, with those sorts of things, um, and I I believe in some things and don't believe in others. Sure, um, but I think the most important thing that for me that I've learned is that. Um, you know, there isn't another vineyard within sort of five kilometres of my house mm. of any volume. So, you know, the most important thing I can do is concentrate on my vineyard, not worry about anyone else's. Yeah. Um, I'm never going to make Chablis. I'm never going to make white burgundy. I'm never going to make red burgundy. No. Um, I need to focus on doing the best with what I've got that I can mm-hmm. without worrying too much about other influences because it's not going to be the same. Yeah. And, you know, part of that is in the last few years I've, after having played around with them, I've sort of given up on clones. Okay. I think I think it's important to look at the clones relative to how they ripen for your site. Sure. But the three hectares of new vineyard we planted, we got about 15 or 16 clones and threw them on the floor of the winery and counted them out and planted them. So <laughs> I don't think it really, I think, you know, it, it if, for, if, for me, the if, sum if of the parts is much more important. Yeah. Um, and in some years, the early ripening ones are going to be much better than the late ripening ones and vice versa in other years in Tassie. And it's about putting it all together. It's about the balance. Well, it's about, yeah, I think the best wines we make come off 30-year-old vines that we don't know what's actually planted clone-wise. Right. So I know they're 30 years old and the other, you know, the clonal stuff we've got only... 12 years old. Yeah. But um, I, I, for me it's a sum of the parts thing and that's, it's not really a philosophy, it's a feeling. Mm-hmm. And I also believe in treating your vineyard the same way every year. Yeah. So And we do that. We treat every vine relative to its health rather yep. than we don't count buds, we don't do any of the sciencey stuff. Um, and, you know, in years like 14 when everyone cl- – uh, Complains about crops. We had the best crop we'd had in about three years. There you go. So it's not. Yeah, I'm not qualified to be a winemaker, so I don't <laughs> play with the science or the or a viticulturist. So I, I treat things the way they. You know, I feel they should be treated. Sure. Yeah, it's about the relationship. The relationship with the with the the land, with the vines, and with the wine. Yeah, I think deep down you have to have some feeling to where you are, mm-hmm. and. Um, and we, I mean, we're very lucky. We have a pretty special piece of land in the Tamer Valley that is um, a pretty warm site, so we're pretty immune to vagaries of the weather. Yeah. So we're picking a bit earlier, so if the weather's going a bit funny later in the season, we're okay. Mm. Um, but, uh, and I just think it's about appreciating that. And when, you know, our neighbours um, have been there for 60 years around right. us. Yeah. And uh, or were they're not there anymore? But they were, and to hear them talk about how, in the twelve years we've been there, the wildlife that's come back on their property because we're not spraying stuff and doing stuff is quite. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. There's quails and there's pheasants have moved in and wombats have moved in. They haven't seen a wombat for twenty years, and wombats aren't great from a vineyard. They're not in the vineyard, thankfully, at the moment, but. To know that you you know by reducing what you're doing and being conscious of what you're doing, you can change the you basically change the microclimate almost or the 
uh, ecosystem in the fact that you're bringing in plants and stuff that weren't there. And you never know. Or have, or have but should be there, but aren't there anymore. And who knows, maybe, you know, in a few more years you'll start seeing Tasmanian tigers again. They saw one in Adelaide a couple that, of weeks ago. Yeah, I... I wasn't sure about that. But anyway, um, Joe, thank you very much for, for being on the show and for sharing uh, a bit about your journey. Um, uh, are there ways that people can find out more about uh, the Stony Rise and Hollyman uh, story uh, and a way that they can follow you as you, um, you know, make more wines and get out and about with them? Uh, yeah, I guess um, we everything's available on the internet, so the website, Yep, Stony Rise, and um, if they're game, they can follow me on social media. Yeah, what what are your accounts? Mm, I think uh, I'm. I forget because I've done that very badly. I'm not very good at marketing, strangely enough. All right, um, I've got Stony Rise on Instagram, Joe Holloman on Facebook, and there is a Stony Rise Wine Company page on Facebook. Yep, and then I think I'm Stony Rise on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll make sure to, to list them on the, the posts. But, uh, look, it was, it was lovely catching up with you and uh, looking forward to trying some more wines in the future. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. And as always, thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gasbrook, also known as The Intrepid Wino, and I'd love for you to follow me on social media. On Instagram and Twitter, you can find me at Intrepid Wino, and you can also follow the podcast on at The Vincast. Uh, I'd love for you to like my Facebook page where you can see some pictures uh, and some links that I share on there. Uh, and why not visit my YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino, all one word, uh, and check out some of the videos that I post there. Subscribe and like and comment and, and share. Uh, I'd love for you to uh, subscribe to the podcast on any number of different podcast hosting apps and programs, uh, including iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Podbean. Uh, subscribing, as mentioned at the start of the episode, means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available and you can get access to all 100 plus episodes that I've already released. As always, I'd love for you to visit me at intrepidwino.com uh, where you can see all the different videos, podcasts and writings that I've done in the past and you can find out how to get in touch with me there. Uh, I'd love for you to join me on future episodes. Got some great guests coming. Uh, but until then, bye. Bye.